0: Okay, there are only two announcements I'm aware of. One is the um, on Monday nights with Camp Arete, uh, Clay Ward is going to be teaching this coming Monday night, doing an overview of the book of Revelation, and then registration for Chafer Seminary Courses. Uh, Started last Saturday. So, if you would like to look at what they have, what their offerings are, you go to chafer.edu and then you go to uh, the schedule, find out what for the students, what the schedule, what the courses are, and you can sign up. If you are uh, part of the West Houston Bible Church family, then I think that you can. Uh, I take those courses for just a nominal nominal fee. How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, Sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth, for the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, we need to make sure that we are in right relationship with the Lord, which means that we need to confess sin if necessary, which means simply to admit or acknowledge our sin to him in silent prayer, and he will instantly forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We need to make sure we keep short accounts with the Lord, and we need to make sure that we continue to walk with him, enjoying that fellowship as we pursue spiritual maturity and this time with pandemics and with all sorts of other things going on in this election year i don't think there's anything more important than focusing on our spiritual life to not get distracted by everything that's going on around us so let's uh, bow our heads together and after a few moments of silent prayer then i will open in prayer let's pray Father, we're so grateful that we have you to come to to lean on, to trust, to uh, watch work in history. Father, we know that we are in your hand, and we know that our lives are under your uh, providential care. Father, we trust you in every area, and as we look at the uncertainties, the chaos that's around us, we know that there is one place of refuge where there is stability and where there is peace and that is in our walk with you. So, Father, we pray that you might continue to strengthen us in our spiritual life, focusing upon you, bringing to mind the promises that we've learned, the promises we've read, that we might relax and rest in you. And, Father, we pray that tonight as we study your word that we'll continue to see how you have provided for uh, for the human race and all of these divine institutions and especially in the family. And we pray that you would open our eyes to what Scripture says in Christ's name. Amen. All right. We have been going through these divine institutions because this forms a framework for teaching us how we should vote. People often get so distracted by specific issues. It may be economic issues related to the Uh, things related to the economy, things related to employment. They may be various domestic policies. They may be various uh, foreign uh, policies, all of which are important. And we know that every government, every Congress, every president is going to make uh, bad decisions because they're sinners. They're going to sometimes engage in erroneous policy. But what's important is that they support these foundational uh, principles. They come out of the framework of a uh, Judeo-Christian worldview, and they are built out of Scripture. And so last time we started to talk about the third divine institution, which is family. And I did not finish last time, and so we will continue looking at family because this is really the bedrock of the nation, it's the bedrock of civilization and it is the training ground for the next generation. Failure of the family means that the civilization, the nation will be in serious trouble because the generation follows will not understand what the absolutes are and what the worldview is out of which they operate. These are the foundations of social order and if the foundations are destroyed, what will the righteous do? So we have looked at these divine institutions. This is the third one. The first one is individual responsibility. It is the bedrock of freedom, that without individual responsibility, freedom uh, in life, free people are not free to make the decisions they want to. They are not free to succeed or free to fail because someone else is making all of the decisions for them. Uh, marriage is grounded on individual responsibility as both... Uh, parties to the marriage are living before God, responsible to him. Each uh, divine institution has an authority, an individual responsibility. Our authority ultimately is God. In marriage, the uh, husband is the head of the home. The husband is the uh, head of the marriage. He is the authority. In family, the parents are the head of the home with the father still as the head of the family. And all three of these were designed in perfect environment, in the uh, paradise of Eden, where there was no sin, there were no problems, everything was great, everybody worked together, nobody was self-seeking, nobody was self-centered, nobody was self-absorbed, everybody was focusing on just one thing, and that is their mission from the Lord in serving the Lord. And it wasn't until sin came in that you had to have uh, other institutions in order to restrain sinning. And that is where we'll get into government, which restrains sin, has to coerce people to restrain their sin natures. And we'll get into that next, next time and also into nations and Israel, I think, is a distinct category. I think it's designed for the path of blessing to the world. So it is not, its purpose, I'll need to change my chart, but its purpose is not to restrain evil, but to provide worldwide blessing, ultimately through uh, the seed of Abraham, which is the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, in the last few weeks, I've had this slide up, I've changed it a little bit. I was doing some studying today. What happens sometimes, you probably can't understand this, I get so excited about what I'm teaching that I thought I'd finished with family last week, and I'm studying through nations and doing all kinds of reading and everything today, and then about 5.30 I said, okay, what do I need to review from last time? And I looked at my notes, and I went, well, I need to go back and get caught up on what I was going to cover in the second half. I would covered five of 14 pages of notes. So... Um, we won't get to na- uh, won't get to government until next week but these divine institutions are absolute social structures they are embedded in reality they are the fabric of reality instituted by god for the entire human race believers and unbelievers alike so that when they are violated there's going to be consequences and then the next definition really comes uh, from pastor theme he used these 5p's that they, the divine institutions are for the perpetuation, preservation, protection, and prosperity. Uh, I have four Ps there, protection and prosperity of the human race. And then as I was reading about government today, I ran across this statement from Martin Luther that he thought government was for the protection, conservation, see that's preservation, fostering, that's uh, protection, prosperity, that's Improvement. So, Pastor Theme was influenced by Martin Luther. We're all influenced by somebody, and um, we all teach on the shoulders of others. But what Pastor Theme did was he systematized the divine institutions and he taught it in a remarkable way so that it really went out and influenced people and they could think categorically about it. So that's the divine institutions. So we started with the definition of the family from the Bible, that it's the union of one man and one woman in marriage, which has been blessed with one or several natural or adopted children. Marriage just involves the man and the woman, but family is when they begin to have have children. And it is an organic union that combines father, mother, and children into an organic or cohesive unit. And that's important because uh, parents need to think about what they are doing from the moment they know they're going to have a child and think through what these responsibilities are going to be under divine institution number one, that they're responsible for their children and for the training of their children. We'll get into those uh, passages uh, a little bit longer Thus, both parents, father and mother, are integral in the rearing and training of the children. Nobody is secondary. Both need to be involved, and it's difficult after the fall because people are consumed with work and with keeping alive and with their production. Uh, You just think that uh, people are busy today, but think about what it was like up until the 20th century when most people were living in an agrarian society and they had to get up and start working uh, at sunup, and they worked until the light went away at sundown, and when they came in, they ate, and they didn't have electricity. They just had candles or firelight or some other form of lamp, and so they would go to bed pretty early, and then they would get up the next morning and do it all over again. And so uh, you have to have a framework in there, a time to fulfill that parental responsibility of uh, training uh, children to enable them to be adults. That's the focal point, is to train them to be successful adults. We're defining that spiritually. That means they understand their relationship with God, and they have been trained mentally so that they can focus on their mission so that they can then pass it on to the next generation so that they can be a blessing to those around them and the surrounding culture and civilization. And if they are not, then they, became a, they become a curse to the surrounding uh, culture and uh, civilization. So like all of the divine institution, this begins in Genesis. Like the first one, it, the first three really are all found in these and embedded in this first command where God creates uh, man, mankind in his image, male and female, he created them equally in his image. And then he gave a command, a fivefold command to be fruitful and multiply. They, he, God envisions that in order to carry out the third command and the fourth command to fill and to subdue the earth, they need to be fruitful and multiply. Their mission is to be God's representative, His vicegerent, over. Uh, this planet that he's created, and in order to fulfill their mission, they need to have a lot of children. So family is envisioned from the very beginning. Uh, Even though they did not have children until after the fall, I think that that was God's grace, God's plan to restrain that for however long Uh, it would take, but I think that it was clearly envisioned, and just like every other command was expected to be fulfilled while they were in the perfect environment of the garden, being fruitful had to be included in that. Uh, It is not logical uh, planning to say, well, you have four commands, um, five commands here, but four of them were not to take place, Um, uh, four of them could take place in the garden, but not the first one. That's not logical either. All of them take place; are they're responsible for all five in the garden, or they're not? So that means that they could have had children, and maybe it would have gone for two or three generations before there was sin. But that's just what if, what if uh, uh, theology, pure speculation. So we also looked at the basic command given in the law, which expands on the parental role that individually you have the first divine institution. Each person is responsible to keep these words in their heart. That means in their thinking, meditating on them, thinking about them. That doesn't mean that you don't get involved in thinking about all kinds of other things, because we do, but but what, what we do is we constantly think about what God has given us, what God has said to us. And we think, in terms of, of, think of the world around us in terms of the fact that God made, made these things and that God is the creator of all things and the wonder of all things because it tells us about God's thinking. As we look at the details of, uh, of, of creation, it exposes the, uh, the incredible mind of our creator. So first of all, parents have to uh, put these things in their thinking. They have to think doctrinally. They have to learn God's word. They have to be able to transmit it to their children. You shall teach them that is these words. That is in, in, uh, literally in the original intent was these words of the law that uh, they were to communicate those to their children. So first of all, they had to know it in their mind, and then they were to teach it diligently, conscientiously uh, to their children. And then they're to talk about them, however how you go through life. Something comes up, you, you talk about it, and then you reflect upon it in terms of whatever biblical uh, verse or principle comes to mind and that that is an example of. And then this is reinforced uh, in the subsequent lines. You shall uh, talk, do it when you're sitting in the house, when you sit, when you walk, when you lie down, when you rise up. In other words, all through life, you talk about God. You, he becomes the center piece of everything. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand. And they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. What that means is not that it's literally written there, but that it is what characterizes the house. It is the house rules, the house law. How you live, how the family, those in that house conduct their lives, is all covered by, by the Torah. And then we talked about the value of children. Psalm one twenty seven three through five. The children are first of all a blessing from the Lord. Second, they are an inheritance or a reward. Uh, they are, third, they are the basis for influencing one's culture just as a warrior shoots arrows into the enemy. So uh, parents are shooting their children, as it were, out into the culture to influence those in their culture. And then we came to the growth process in Luke 2.52, talking about Jesus, that he kept increasing in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and men. And this it covers four areas of growth that parents are to oversee. Wisdom relates to their intellectual development, but even more specifically to their skill at applying the Scripture. They grow in increase in wisdom. This is a process of of growth. It's a good idea to start your children memorizing Scripture when they are very, very young. My mother always said that the first complete sentence I spoke was first John one nine sort of a precursor of something I would need in my life. So you start them learning scripture, and then uh, that helps to shape their thinking from the very, very beginning, uh, physically in stature, how you feed them, how you take care of their physical health. Uh, giving them opportunities to grow physically, play uh, games, athletics, different things of that nature to increase their their strength and their physical stamina. And then in favor with God and men, in favor with God deals with their spiritual life. You have to tell your children about the Lord. You should not let somebody else. I can't think of anything that would be more rewarding as a parent than to tell your children about the Lord Jesus Christ and give them the gospel, so that you know with certainty that they that they are saved. Uh, when I was six years old, uh, I can pretty much I know we were living in one house, and I know where we'd gone to church that morning, and so I can narrow it down to to May of nineteen fifty nine. And um, my, we came home from church, and my parents, uh, for some reason, decided they were going to give me the gospel that day. And what, what happens in May every year? You have Mother's Day, the second Sunday in May. And I would bet anything that part of the message that May was on the fact that parents need to tell your children the gospel. And so they went home and told me the gospel, and I trusted in Christ. So I think it was Mother's Day of 1959, but we were only in that house where it happened another three weeks after that, and we had just moved into that church building about two weeks before, so I, I have a pretty good window there is when I first became a believer. And then I went down the street to tell uh, my best friend at the time how he could know that he was going to go to heaven if if he died. And so uh, that is very important for parents to do that and then to uh, work together as a family on memorizing Scripture and finding the time, making the time for parents to... Uh, read the Bible or pray with their kids before they go to sleep, especially the father, that's so important. The mother's around them a lot during the day, and she gets opportunities to remind them of what God is doing and the right things and the wrong things, but to hear that it's also the dad, that is so critical. In my first church, I had... um, I had a lady who was coming to church and she had a couple of small kids. I had several, like I've had in most churches, I've had two or three or four or more uh, divorced mothers with their children coming to church. And one day this mother told me that she got up and she was going to, she had about a six or seven year old son. And uh, of course, the, she, she was a divorce, the, but the husband wasn't interested. I'm not even sure if he was a believer. But he wasn't interested in coming to church, and she had always brought this boy to church. And she said, well, we need need to get up, and we need to go to church. And he turned around, and he said, Daddy doesn't go to church. I don't need to go to church. Men don't need church. Think about that message that that kid's gotten. And that happens again and again and again in our culture, which is one reason we're having as many problems as we do, is because the men are not biblical men. They follow a human viewpoint world standard of what it means to be a man. But in our culture, too often, church is for women. And uh, that's not just true for this generation. There's been a problem... With this that goes back even into the Middle Ages, uh, talking about how more women than men go to church. I've got a couple of studies, uh, historical studies on this, uh, in my in my library. But it is the responsibility primarily of the father, even though he may delegate a lot of responsibility to the mother in uh, do, teaching a lot to the kids. It's ultimately the dad's responsibility. Uh, in evangelism. So that brings us to the next point, and that is the role of parents in training children. And I want to read something to you as I've, was, as I've been thinking about this, is one of the major problems that we have in our culture, and I've talked mentioned this before, that goes back to, in our generation, goes back to the 50s and Uh, the horrible influence of Dr. Benjamin Spock teaching a real permissive attitude towards parental discipline on children, but it's just gotten worse. And what happens when parents are permissive towards their children's misbehavior and sinfulness and their poor manners and their bad behavior is that the flip side of permissiveness is antinomianism. If you are a permissive parent, you are teaching your children that it's not important to obey the rules, especially the rules of, of self-discipline and rules of morality. And we've seen three generations now that have been where the parenting has become has been in, increasingly permissive, and now we have a generation that are referred to as snowflakes because they are all they they have no idea what reality is like because they have been sheltered from reality by their parents they have not learned self discipline the parents have not uh, trained them and the result is that we now have a generation that is rebelling and we're seeing this coming out uh, they're rejecting the standards of of this nation that made this nation a great nation And they are opting for something that offers the illusion of security so they don't have to take personal responsibility for their lives and possibly even fail. But you're only free to succeed to the degree you are free to fail. And if you're not free to fail, which is the promise of socialism and and communism, if you're not free to fail because the government's going to take care of you and everything, then you're not free to succeed either. And that destroys... A culture, and I've seen the results of that in my work in the former Soviet Union. It destroyed initiative, it destroyed uh, industriousness, it destroyed the the work ethic, and so uh, the men in that culture uh, and i 'm seeing this more and more take place in our culture. the men are irresponsible. They have left their wives and their children. They have become drunks. In some cases, that's why they were kicked out of the house. They became abusive, and they are not hard workers. And you have a culture there where you have an incredible number of energetic, enthusiastic, industrious women motivated to provide for their child or their children And they are the ones who are getting educated. They're the ones who are going into the professions. They are the ones who are uh, taking care of the home. And the husband or ex-husband is a sot. He's a drunk in the streets. And that's exactly what communism produced. It destroyed marriages, it destroyed the family, and it destroyed their civilization so that they have to be totally dependent on government because there's no sense of personal responsibility and initiative anymore. And that's why we have to completely stop this trend towards Marxism and socialism. Uh, It would be a historical aberration if we do. It would be the grace of God to turn it around. So we have to understand what is necessary to produce an antinomian child. And I have a book here written by a uh, <clears throat> one of the men who regularly listens to uh, our live stream and listens to all of the messages here. His name's Rick Fugate, uh, Richard Fugate. And he wrote this first edition of this book, it came out in the early 80s, and I read that uh, some 30 years ago. And he's updated it several times. And it's called What the Bible Says About Child Training Parenting with Confidence. And he and his wife have uh, reared three wonderful children. He has a daughter, whose hu- she and her husband came to the uh, trip we took to the Bible Museum uh, last year, but uh, Rick's got a lot of health problems, and he's gone through a lot of surgeries. In fact, I think he had one yesterday, uh, yesterday. He was getting ready to have one where his shoulder's freezing up on him, and he has to get get that worked on, but he's, uh, he, he's done a great job, written a number of books, and for many years he um, worked in a ministry called he was the founder and director of the Foundation uh, for Biblical Research, and so they did a lot of seminars and they did a lot of training, a lot of work in the original languages, and so he is a uh, he's a really solid solid scholar. I I had a roommate who went to one of his Bible classes back, and when I was in seminary in the 70s, I've I, I haven't met him. I think he has been here. Uh, I know he's been here. He's been here for at least one one, uh, Chafer Conference. But he has on page 101 of this edition, 12 Rules for Raising Delinquent Children. So I think we'll learn something from that. He says, number one, begin in infancy to give the child everything he wants. In this way, he will grow up to believe that the world owes him a living. Second, when he picks up bad words, laugh at him. This will make him think he's cute. It will also encourage him to pick up cuter phrases that will really shock you later. Third, never give him any spiritual training. Wait till he's 21 and then let him decide for yourself. And that is really true. I've heard so many really incompetent parents say, oh, and they think they're being so mature. I'm going to let him decide for himself. That's one of the worst things you can do. That's not your job as a parent. Your job is to teach him the truth. Fourth, avoid use of the word wrong. It might develop a guilt complex. This will condition him to believe later when he is arrested for stealing a car that society is against him and he is being persecuted, or the word today is oppressed. Fifth, pick up everything he leaves lying around books, shoes, clothing, do everything for him so he will be be experienced in throwing all responsibility on others. Sixth, let him read any printed material he can get his hands on. Be careful that the silverware and drinking glasses are sterilized, but let his mind feast on garbage. Seventh, quarrel frequently in the presence of your children. In this way, they will not be too shocked when the home is broken up later. Eighth, Give a child all the spending money he wants. Never let him earn his own. Why should he have things as tough as you had it? Ninth, satisfy his every craving for food, drink, and comfort. See that every sensual desire is gratified. Denial may lead to harmful frustration. Tenth, take his part, take his side against neighbors, teachers, and policemen who are trying to correct him. They are all prejudiced against your child. I remember when I was a kid, I knew, especially in high school, I knew that if I got in trouble, I was dead meat. The, in Texas, the vice principal or assistant principal is the um, disciplinarian in the high school. It just so happened where I went to high school, the assistant principal's wife had been my mother's roommate all through college and was still her best friend. And so the word was, if he needs any discipline, just do whatever you think is necessary, which meant I had to always be on the straight and narrow. So, uh, But when I taught school for a couple of years in the 70s, Whenever a kid did something wrong, the parents were always coming down and they were taking the kid's side all the time. And I was on the front line of that because I spent two years running an in-school suspension class, so I rarely saw a good kid. So I was glad when I left there to go to seminary. A lot of people joked about that. Well, after two years of that, of course, you're going to go off and go into a monastery. Eleventh, when he gets into trouble, apologize for yourself by saying, I never could do anything with him. And twelfth, prepare for a life of grief. You will be apt to have it. So those are guidelines for uh, things. But I recommend this book if you are a parent or thinking about being a parent. uh, Good guidelines in uh, Rick Fugate's book, What the Bible Says about child training parenting with confidence so we have to parents can't be permissive just look at look at what's going on in the world around us right now we have a generation that is rioting and demonstrating and having uh, temper tantrums all over the place and they are in the in terms of morality and ethics they are antinomian they reject law they reject standards All of those things, they have been reared by permissive parents. They have not been uh, trained at all to be mature adults serving the Lord. So when we get into uh, this whole issue of, of child training, we have to remember, first of all, that when you have a baby, that that wonderful, cute little package, that baby is nothing more than a sin nature wrapped up in the flesh. Remember, the Scripture says that the heart of every child is evil and wicked. Foolishness is bound up in the heart of a child. Foolishness is all of the thinking that is contrary to the Word of God. That is bound up in the heart of your child. That is what he is inclined to because he has a sin nature. And the sin nature can only gravitate towards that which is sinful. It can do good things, but those good things are done apart from God in independence of God, so they're just relative good, they're just human good, they are not uh, righteousness. And so from the very time that he is born, the role of the parent is to begin to train him. Don't wait till they're two, don't wait till they can talk, don't wait till they're four or five. It needs to begin at the very, very beginning because you are setting the course. And when we talk about this word training, then that is a key idea here. It's the idea of providing a channel for a person, a direction, giving them uh, controls, putting down the boundaries so they don't go out of bounds, so you are directing their life in a particular direction. And this is part of what it means uh, to train. And we'll look at the word there in a minute when we get into various details. But from the very beginning, that child, it's, everything is focuses on him. He, if he gets hungry, he cries. If he as gets wet, he cries. For whatever reason, if he's uncomfortable, he cries because he wants to get uh, the attention of someone to take care of him. So he begins to learn that uh, what he can do to manipulate uh, the people around him to do what he what he wants, and so as as time goes by, there have to be some uh, instruction, some teaching, and even though you may say well he doesn 't understand anything, his brain is working you 're formatting his brain in in various ways with the language that you use, with the tone of voice that you use. Uh, all of these things are shaping him and or, or her and preparing them along the way, and as that sin nature grows, the, his various trends, uh, trends towards uh, antinomianism or disobedience. You may have a rebel uh, one who trends towards rebelliousness or one who uh, tries to cover up his rebelliousness by doing always trying to please you things of this nature. And as a parent, if you understand the sin nature, then this is a tremendous tool to help you understand uh, your child's behavior. And you as a mother or a dad are going to know that child better than that child will ever know himself because you're going to see those those trends developing uh, from the very very beginning. And the solution to any child's uh, disobedience is correction. And the purpose of correction is to begin to teach them to say no to themselves and not to be self-centered. And they need to develop uh, self-discipline, and they need to learn self-control so that they Uh, develop the ability to postpone gratification all of this will pay off uh, down the road Uh, correction does not necessarily mean some sort of corporal punishment but it does mean that they will learn that there are uh, negative consequences to wrong behavior and that there are positive consequences to good behavior so you definitely want to use, uh, use rewards When we get into looking at uh, the words that we find in Scripture, one of the words for instruction is the word Torah. Now, normally we think of Torah as, as the law because it also means law, but it is instruction for living. There were 613 commandments given in the Torah of Israel. This defines the boundaries. And so, when you step out of bounds, then there has to be instruction. And we believe that in many areas, you play any sports. What happens? You go out of bounds. You violate the rules. There's immediate correction. There's some sort of penalty involved, or something. And you realize that that you have to obey the rules. And the same is true in life. And when we get into Scripture, we discover that God's uh, one of the ways God teaches families about uh, teaching children is in the book of proverbs in fact when we look at proverbs 1 1 it begins the proverbs of solomon the son of david king of israel now there are many who believe and i agree with them that these these derived this wisdom that solomon had came from his dad now he's the wisest man that ever lived we know that about solomon But Solomon had a father, and that father was King David, and that's what is emphasized here at the very beginning. So he is the product of his father's training as well. And the purpose for the book of Proverbs is uh, to know wisdom and instruction and to perceive the words of understanding. Uh, Wisdom is the Hebrew word chokmah, which has the idea of skillful application. It's used in some passages, for example, to talk about the skill of the uh, carpenters and the uh, jewelers, the metalworkers who worked on the construction of the tabernacle. So it has to do with skillful work. It's not the sort of abstract uh, intellectual accomplishments that wisdom is... Known for in greek culture it 's a very practical thing in Hebrew culture and instruction that is giving positive teaching and information for uh, performing certain actions uh, understanding in uh, in the, the, uh, uh, throughout the scripture uses a word called bean, and I always remembered it because bean sounds like between, and that was one of the ways I memorized the vocabulary in Hebrew. And it has that idea of discernment, to decide between two options. Uh, so it's And then verse 3, to receive the instruction of wisdom. Uh, so that involves humility. You have to be humble. If you're arrogant, you don't think you need to learn anything. And uh, wisdom, and you have to receive the instruction of wisdom, justice. This establishes a standard uh, for life. Judgment is how you... Uh, related to uh, ordinances and the application of the law and equity and to give prudence to the simple in knowledge and discretion uh, to the young man now one of the key verses is Proverbs 22 6 train up a child in the way he should go and when he is old he will not depart from it now a proverb is not a promise a lot of parents hold on to this Uh, as a promise that, well, I did a good job in training them, but now that they're mature, they've rejected God and they're going their own way, so then either parents think that the Bible's not true or they just have a hope that is not grounded in that the child won't or the child will come back. This is talking about what happens in most cases. In many, many cases in my life, probably in most of your lives, you went through some period after you left home of uh, rebellion where you were trying to figure out what you believed instead of what your parents believed and what you wanted to do instead of what your parents wanted you to do. And that might have been an extreme form of rebellion or it might not have been, uh, but that happens in in many lives and they get the opportunity to make their own decisions. And if um, in most cases that that child will eventually come back because you have set his course correctly. And that's that idea in the word training. It's translated training. It's kanak in the Hebrew, and it means to train or to dedicate something. Now, in the sense, uh, you have something that you dedicate or set aside to a specific task. So this is the idea that that um, one example Rick uses in his book is the idea of if you are, uh, for example, if you put uh, certain plants that you want to grow up on a trellis, then what you do is you train it to grow. You prune it. You the the leaves that are and the stems and branches going in the directions you don't want them to go. You prune those off and you train the plant to grow uh, along the trellis or over a fence or certain things of that nature. Uh, I've got a terrible time with some bougainvillea right now because uh, the trunk is six inches across now, and whenever I prune it back, it just goes crazy, and I've got to prune it like every two or three weeks uh, just to keep it from uh, getting too high, falling over the fence and... and, uh, Uh, Then get the homeowners association after me. So uh, training has that idea of discipline. Now so often we hear the word discipline, we think of something that is negative. But discipline is is also positive. Uh, Discipline is the idea of saying no to distractions, saying no to things that will take us in the wrong direction. But it is also the idea of saying yes to the correct things. And saying, okay, I'm going to get up this morning and Uh, I need to read my Bible, and I need to pray, and I need to memorize a a promise from Scripture. And so you get yourself up, and you make yourself do what you know you ought to do. That is discipline. It is not letting yourself do whatever you may feel like doing. uh, Instead, that will not be productive, and you have a plan and a purpose to take yourself in the right direction. So the idea here is training up a child. Now, a child here is uh, in Hebrew culture is a child that is under the age of thirteen. They didn't have adolescence. That's a 1920s invention in Western civilization. But up until the 20th century, you were either a child or you were an adult, and usually you became an adult at the time that that you could have children. So puberty is that uh, that that marker. in in most cultures and in the Hebrew culture it was at 13 when a son became 13 then he was bar mitzvah; he became a son of the covenant and so from that point on he's treated as an adult so you have roughly 12 or 13 years to shape them to teach them to train them to go in the right direction and then uh, when you've done that when they are old They will not depart from it most of the time. Uh, But you have rebellious generations. For example, the generation that came out of Egypt, uh, the Exodus generation, was a rebellious generation. And they had children. Have you ever thought about why is it that the uh, conquest generation was obedient? They followed the Lord, but their parents didn't. So if if their parents aren't following the Lord, I will bet you good money... That they weren't good parents; they weren't training their children right, and uh, and so when the children uh, grew up and became adults, they had a they were the conquest generation. They trusted God, but then what happens? Well, you read through Judges one and two, and you see that very quickly the generation that came after them that didn't know Joshua, didn't know about the conquest, they became a spoiled generation. They uh, uh, or at least they compromised all the time with God. So you would think that the Exodus, I mean, the conquest generation were good parents, but the generation that followed were not obedient to God. So just because uh, you have a child that's rebellious, a child that's turned, turned his or her back to the Lord, and uh, is in a life of rebellion, it doesn't mean that you did a bad job it just means that they exercise their volition and you can't control other people's volitions. You can do everything you can to train them and point them in the right direction, but then they have uh, a sin nature and they can, uh, if they, especially if they're surrounded by a culture of their peers that denigrate the Bible and have disrespect for God, then they can pick that up. It, their sin natures gravitate to it and the next thing you know, uh, you, you, have, you have lost them and they're going in the wrong direction. And so you just have to spend the rest of your life praying uh, diligently every single day that God would intervene in their, uh, in their life. But the goal of parents is to teach them to focus on their goals, to understand what they need to do, uh, not to be distracted, but to be self-disciplined and to overcome obstacles. Then we get into back to the first chapter of Proverbs. In Proverbs 1, 8 to 9, we read, My son, hear the instruction of your father. Now here it's not the word Torah, which is often translated uh, instruction. It's musar, and it means discipline or instruction. So the two go together. It's not just instruction isn't just giving them information. Instruction has to do with guiding them and directing their their thinking so that they understand, not only understand the information, but why it is true and how to use uh, the information. So it is, it's disciplined instruction. Hear the instruction of your father and do not forsake the law of your mother. For they will be a graceful ornament on your head and chains about your neck. Now, that's only if the father and mother are teaching the Bible. If they're not, then that's not going to be true because you're just learning a lot of uh, human viewpoint lies and mythology. Proverbs 1 uh, 3 says, To receive the instruction, that's Musar. Proverbs 22.15, which is a verse I mentioned a minute ago, foolishness is bound up in the heart of a child, but the rod of discipline or instruction will drive it far from him. So this is, uh, has both a literal and a figurative sense. It's sometimes there's a need for corporate, corporal discipline where the child is uh, disciplined by the parents uh, through spanking, which in some states has been, they've tried to outlaw it. So that that is dictating parental policy to the family, which the state does not have the right to do. But unfortunately, there are so many people who don't understand humility. They don't understand that when you are disciplining a child, you cannot become emotional. You have to remain uh, emotionally uh, objective and distance and do the right thing like an impartial judge uh, in a courtroom and so there are times when you may need to spank a child but you don't ever do it out of anger out of frustration uh, you don't act in, with a short tempered manner but it is necessary sometimes to do that, and especially when they're a child and they've got a bunch of padding on their rear uh, wearing a diaper that that you, you smack them on the butt uh, that that's they're not going to feel anything other than uh, they know that, that you're unhappy with them, and that more than anything is going to cause them to uh, to cry. I remember some times when I was real little, and the, just the threat of uh, my dad going to get his belt would send me screaming from the room in tears, and that was all it really needed because I didn't want to face that. I knew exactly what, what would come. And, you know, my dad didn't have to do that very much, but there were times when my behavior had reached a point when it needed a little bit more uh, than just the usual correction. Proverbs 3.11, don't despise the discipline of the Lord. That's Musar also. See, discipline is a godly thing if you want to be God-like, then you discipline your children because God loves us. Whom the Lord loves, he disciplines. And so scripture says don't despise that. Don't think lightly of it. Don't treat that with uh, with ill respect. And see, we have a world today where all the sociologists and psychologists and all of their uh, human viewpoint wisdom have come together, and they have said, you don't really need to uh, have negative harsh discipline just love your children and let them do what they want to do and this has caused us to bring about the current mess where you have a uh, you've had created a permissive environment and you have an antinomian uh, culture 2 Timothy 3:16 says that all scripture is given by inspiration of God And it's profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction. See, there are so many people who, who they can't handle reproof and they can't handle correction. And that's because their parents never reproved them, never said, you're wrong, and don't do it that way, and this is how to do it. They never heard that from their parents. So when they get into a marriage and their spouse says, you're wrong... They run from the marriage, and they think they've been abused. And they Now, I'm not minimizing genuine abuse, but we live in a world today where people cannot handle being corrected when they are wrong. They lack humility, and uh, they are arrogant and self-absorbed. And so if you even indicate that they are wrong, they are going to uh, just have an absolute meltdown. Uh, God is in the business of of reproving us, teaching us, and reproving us. Churches are like this, too. You go to so many churches. I remember hearing this when I was in my first church. Some little old lady told me, oh, we just need to go home from church feeling good all the time. I said, well, if you read your Bible and you feel good all the time, then you're reading the wrong Bible. Uh, we, We read what God says to us, and it should make us feel bad at times because we've been wrong. And we have to have the humility to accept that. And correction. It's not just a matter of punishing. It is a matter of correction. So there may be corporal punishment. There may be punishment of grounding. There may be punishment of taking away privileges. There's all kinds of different ways that there can be, uh, uh, that there can be punishment. But it has to be coupled with correction To teaching the child, this is how you felt, this is what you wanted to do, this is why it is wrong. And when you feel that way or you want to act that way, this is what you need to do and to practice so that you learn how to control your emotions and you learn correct behavior. And so reproof and correction are part of God's standard. These verses are quoted in hebrews twelve five proverbs three eleven and proverbs four five are quoted in hebrews twelve five and six My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor be discouraged when you are rebuked by him for whom the Lord loves He chastens." And this has the idea of of discipline, of uh, of correction, of bringing hardship, difficulty, and negative consequences into a person's life. But it uses very vivid language of chastening and scourging, a word used for whipping. And so uh, we're not to despise the chastening, and that word in the Hebrew is instruction and discipline. So God is going to discipline us, and sometimes when we are very hard-headed and rebellious, and we are mired in our sin, then God is going to uh, correct us in some very unpleasant ways. So this is what God does, and this is, he does that, and he teaches parents that. And the result in verse 7, If you endure chastening, God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom a father does not chasten? Now, this is stated as a universal principle, but we all know that there are fathers who haven't ever chastened their children, and they have uh, created monsters. But if you are without chastening, of which all have become partakers, that is, of the chastening all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate and not sons. If you're not disciplining your children, then you are treating them as if they belong to somebody else. You are not a good parent. That's what this is saying. You have you have turned your children into little bastards. That's exactly what it is. So foolishness is bound up in the heart of a child, and so we the job of parents is to get that out of them, to teach them self discipline and self control. Proverbs ten thirteen. Uh, Wisdom is found on the lips of him who has understanding but a rod is for the back of him who is devoid of understanding. So again, you have clear teaching in Scripture of a negative uh, punishment and one that can involve corporal punishment if necessary. Proverbs 13:24. He who spares his rod hates his son. There are a lot of parents who hate their children because they don't. they think it's just magic, that you're going to reach 18 or 20 and you're going to do okay. And these are people who who are ignorant and they hate their children, but he who loves him—that is, you love your your son—disciplines him promptly. That's another key: is it's timely. It's not the next day or three days later, but it is. It's in a timely manner so that they have immediate uh, negative feedback. Uh, Proverbs twenty-six three says, "A whip for the horse, a bridle for the donkey, and a rod for the fool's back." So these are verses that are going to be taken out of Scripture once all the liberals get in charge, and they will uh, want to create their own view of, of the Bible. Uh, Proverbs twenty nine fifteen: The rod and rebuke give wisdom, but a child left to himself brings shame to his mother. Parents need to create just a list, uh, put it on the wall of all of these uh, verses. Now, when we come into the New Testament... Uh, Ephesians six one through four uh, develops this thinking, just as we have in Colossians chapter three twenty and twenty one. Colossians four says, "And you fathers, do not provoke your children to wrath. You do that when you discipline them in anger and resentment, and if you don't have, and if you're not uh, just in the way you uh, mete out your punishment." Do not provoke your children to wrath, but bring them up in the training and the admonition of the Lord. If you are as a father are constantly teaching your children the right way to behave, the right way to live and when they're very, very young, and when they're very young, they do want nothing more than to please their parents, then that is going to help set their their course. But if you try to discipline them when you haven't set that positive context of love and care and concern, then that too is going to generate uh, generate some problems. Um, then we have Colossians 3, 20, 21, the children are given the responsibility, obey your parents in all things, for this is well-pleasing to the Lord. So from a the time they're young, they need to learn this, that you want to please God, you want to please the Lord, then you need to obey your parents. And uh, Colossians three twenty one, Proverb uh, fathers do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. So it has to happen on on both the, both sides. Now what's interesting is in Ephesians six we looked at six four earlier, but the instructions to the children in Ephesians six uh, says honor your father and mother uh, so that it may be well with you and that you may live long. On the earth, that's verse three. Now, why do you think that they would live long? One of the first uh, things I ever sat up and paid attention to when I was a little boy in church on Sunday. Usually, I would sleep. So, if you have kids and they aren't following the message and they want to sleep through Bible class, it doesn't mean they're they're hopeless. Um, But the pastor was teaching on this very verse. And I really don't know remember much of what he said, other than if you don't honor your father and your mother, you may not live very long. And that uh, I took that to heart that I wanted to live a long time. But there's a context for this. Uh, there there is a context for this, which we'll get to in um, in just a minute. And that context it comes out of the Mosaic Law. Uh, there's another principle here in John eight twenty nine. Where Jesus says, he who sent me is with me. The Father has not left me alone, for I always do those things that please him. So Jesus did those things that pleased God, and so we should as well. Um, Okay, here's the slide on the Ephesians passage, verse uh, 2 and 3. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with the promise. Of the Ten Commandments, it has a promise uh, that that you may live long on the earth. So one of the reasons that you you live long on the earth has to do with what comes up in the law. So I'm... Let me figure out how to do this. Okay. Uh, Deuteronomy 21. Now, what happens is that critics of the Bible say this is harsh and this is horrible, but it isn't if you understand the context. Uh, remember the importance of the family is to train up the child in the way he should go. And so there may come a time when there is a rebellious son. Now, this isn't a child, okay? The language here indicates that he is past that age of 13. And that what has happened is the parents have discovered that this is an incorrigible sociopath, Okay, this isn't just a teenager going through difficult times in a rebellious period, but you know that that what has happened is that uh, this son now uh, doesn't obey authority. He hasn't learned authority, and he's going to be a real problem for the whole culture. And so uh, they have uh, chastened him, And he won't obey him. They have done everything they could. The word there is Musar again. It's to to train them, train and discipline. But he's rejected it all along. Then his father and mother shall take hold of him and bring him out to the elders of his city, to the gate of the city. So what this is describing is they recognize that this is a child, a son now that has reached an age of maturity and that he is now uh, going to be a problem for society and for the culture and that he is uh, going to be a maybe a criminal and that he does not listen to any authority and so they recognize that he could turn into some sort of psychotic killer or a become a problem to to the culture and so they take him to the civil authorities. That's the elders meet in the gate. That's They're taking him to court. And then they will say to the elders, this son of ours is stubborn and rebellious. He will not obey our voice. He is a glutton and a drunkard. He has no self-discipline, no self-control, he is remember gluttony is just as much a sin as as being a drunkard. being a drunk being an alcoholic is just as much a sin we live in a culture today that says that oh no it's a disease no it's not a disease not any more than any other area of our life where we refuse to uh, bring it under the dominion of the word of god we sin develops bad habits and gluttony which is a major sin in our culture is winked at, whereas being an alcoholic isn't. But then you raise a generation of diabetics and many, many other health issues. I always remember the story of of uh, Dwight Moody and Charles Spurgeon. Charles Spurgeon was considered the prince of preachers in Victorian England. He had the largest church and the greatest ministry, and he was remarkable in his oratory And Dwight Moody was a major evangelist from the United States. And Moody and uh, uh, Spurgeon were hefty, shall we say. They carried around a few extra pounds, if the pictures are accurate. And they are riding together on a train, and Spurgeon enjoyed a good cigar. And so he lit up his cigar, and... Moody, who was somewhat legalistic, said, Oh, I wish you'd put that thing out. When are you going to stop smoking that terrible, horrible habit? And Spurgeon poked him in his rotund belly and said, When you stop being a glutton. So those are good friends who can talk to each other like that. And uh, that's a problem. So you have this rebellious... this This is criminal rebellion. This is not some kid who just... Uh, mouths off or uh, other smaller infractions. This is a uh, this kid who is now 15 or 16, which is an adult in that culture, is now a major problem. Then all of the men. So they take him. There is a court. There is a trial. To you know the the city. Everybody needs to know. They've known this kid since he was. Uh, born. And so it's not just the parents who've gotten mad at the kid and they say, well, we want to get rid of him. The whole town, the village, all the people come, they have a, a trial and they recognize, yes, the parents are absolutely correct. And all of the men of his city shall stone him to death with stones. So you shall put away the evil from among you and all Israel shall hear in fear. Now, this is very, very serious Uh, This is not anything flippant here. It's a recognition that if you allow sociopathic young adults to survive, they will end up destroying your culture. And I think there are some ways in which this needs to be applied in the current situation, that we have uh, been too permissive with these riots and everything. We have let it go on the destruction of private property and the destruction of people's livelihoods, uh, buildings that have burned down, and yet we don't do anything to really stop it because we have these permissive Democrat mayors and Democrat governors who have uh, followed permissive policies in probably their own parenting and uh, child rearing. And so the result is that we have let this evil grow up among us. And Exodus twenty-one fifteen says, and he who strikes his father or his mother shall surely be put to death. This is the reality. God understands sin better than anybody else. And he understands if you develop a sociopathic child that refuses to accept discipline or correction or training, then he will become a criminal element that will be destructive to the culture and to the the society. And so there needs to be uh, a correction. And this is something that is very serious. Parenting is an extremely serious responsibility. It can be a lot of fun, and if you do a good job, you're going to reap wonderful benefits for the rest of your life. Now, as we wrap this up, let's ask the question, what did America's founding fathers think about family? I have said that family is very important. It's bedrock of the culture. And we've looked at what the Bible said. Well, did this inform our founding fathers? Well, of course it did. John Adams wrote, Children should be educated and instructed in the principles of freedom. And this is something that he wrote uh, uh, somewhat early in his life. He wrote this in his diary. And then... An, In a letter to his wife, Abigail, in 1776, teaching them uh, or giving her advice about training their children, their sons, he said, let them revere nothing but religion, morality, and liberty. Parents, are you teaching your children about the Lord? Are you reading the Bible to them? Are you exhibiting that he is a vital part of your life every day? Are you teaching them about morality, about right and wrong, and are you teaching them about the value of freedom and liberty? These are critical things that should be part of every child's curriculum in seventeen eighty Samuel Adams, he was a cousin of John Adams, wrote the importance of piety and religion now this seventeen eighty this is four years into the uh, American War for Independence. And uh, Sam Adams has a role of leadership within Massachusetts at that time. Later, he became governor uh, when, it was under the, when it was after the Constitution was, uh, was uh, put in place. He said, the importance of piety and religion, of industry and frugality, okay, working hard and saving your money, of prudence, economy, regularity, that is consistently a well-disciplined, well-ordered life, and an even government, a consistent government, all are essential to the well-being of a family. So if you want to have a solid family life, then these are areas to focus on. Thomas Jefferson, in a letter to Francis Willis, Jr., April 18th, 1790, just after the Constitution is put into place, he said, The happiest moments of my life have been the few which I have passed at home in the bosom of my family. They understood its importance. John w- James Wilson, in his lectures on law in 1791, said it is the duty of parents to maintain their children decently and according to their circumstances to protect them according to the dictates of prudence and to educate them according to the suggestions of a judicious and zealous regard for their usefulness, their respectability and happiness. Usefulness is that so they can work so that they can uh, uh, be productive and a benefit to the society, the culture, their city, their town, and being involved in the community and their respectability, that they are obedient to the law, and their and the happiness for the, those around them. And uh, I've already quoted that. Oh, this is another entry by, by Adams. The foundation of national morality must be laid in private families. When the family fails, the nation fails. How is it possible that children can have any just sense of the sacred obligations of morality or religion, and from their earliest infancy they learn their mothers live in habitual infidelity to their fathers and their fathers in as constant infidelity to their mothers. It is important for parents to live out the principles that they teach. So this uh, shows us the importance of family as a divine institution. So next time, we'll start looking at the three that come after sin, the two that are designed to restrain sin, government, and nationalism, and then ultimately the one that will provide blessing for all the world, and that is Israel. Father, thank you for this opportunity for this study to be reminded. Of parental responsibilities to be reminded of the importance of of children and of training children rearing children that this responsibility goes to the parents and it is intended to be accomplished through both mother and father Uh, neither of them abdicating responsibility to the others but each each the mother and the father are uh, have their own roles to play and have their own specific influence on each child Uh, Father, we pray for those listening, for especially those who are parents, those who are parents of young children, uh, that they will uh, think conscientiously about how they are conducting and ordering their lives in the home to prepare their children to be uh, mature, productive uh, adults in our culture and community, as well as to be those who serve the Lord in every area of their life. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.